There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So, welcome to another episode in our endurance month this February, and uh, I'm here with Professor Ross Tucker, and my name is, of course, Mike Finch, and uh, we've had uh, one episode of our endurance uh, podcasts earlier this month where we talked on, in general about what endurance was and the kind of uh, training that people needed to do with it, but we felt that we needed to get stuck into the weeds of the fuel and nutrition space, which is uh, a very complicated, often... Uh, there's a lot of uh, talk about it. There's lots of theories. There's lots of uh, snake oils out there that people talk about in terms of nutrition and fuel for endurance events. So I thought we'd, we'd, we'd tackle Ross on this and kind of get stuck into some of the, the bigger issues here. And we'll get stuck into some of them, Ross. But it is one of those things where there is so many products on the market. There's so many theories. There's fad diets. There's keto. There's carb depletion. There's excess carb. There's I remember back in the 80s, comrades runners here in South Africa used to do this diet where they would not do any carbs for five days before. And then the last two days, they would then hit the carbs pretty hard. And that was what everybody did. Now, nobody does that at all, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. So it is one of those things where, you know, depending where you are, there's a lot of theories and almost like what, what is the, there's the, the current fad in terms of what people do in, in terms of nutrition and, and fuel for endurance events. Yes, and I think it speaks to the importance of, of nutrition for endurance because in our first episode, we spoke about five or six challenges that every athlete doing an endurance activity has to overcome. And you go into those activities knowing that if you successfully overcome them, you'll finish or win or achieve whatever it is you're trying to get out of it. And if you don't, you won't. You fail. And endurance is the one. Uh, sorry, nutrition is the one unavoidable. Mm. Because whether it's a marathon or an ultra marathon or a multi-stage day cycle race you're doing or a winter sport, uh, cross-country skiing expedition, whatever it is, endurance is uh, nutrition is the one thing that will trip you up if you don't get it right. Because the body, as we are about to learn can only fuel a certain intensity for a certain period of time before the tanks run dry. And at the point the tanks run dry, the exercise stops by, by, des by design. <laughs> and yeah. so we have, to, we have to solve it. And so that, that creates the space that then people try and insert these products into because you can sell to a need. And then it also creates really fascinating scientific um, theories and understandings. And you alluded to one, which was the carb loading one, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about and mm. how that practice has evolved. And the pendulum swings from one side to the next. And I'm sure it gets confusing for people. So hopefully this episode can uh, resolve some of that confusion and give people three things to help them solve the challenge. Yeah, and I think that's really what we want to do. I mean, that's kind of what I want to get out of it to some extent because, you know, working in this space a lot of the time, if you speak to individual endurance athletes, it seems that every single 
endurance athlete has their own version of how they would fuel and do their nutrition on endurance events. Mm. Uh, I watched the Ultra Trail Cape Town um, here in Cape Town, which is a 100-kilometer uh, trail run, which said some of the best runners of the world did, including um, Jim Wormsley. And some of those people were, were fueling with, one, I think one of the runners was running with um, stopping at the water points and having sweet potato, for instance. That was his... That was his thing that he went with, and I thought to myself, that's a good idea. You know, maybe I should do that on my next ride or whatever. Not very practical on a ride, but it's those sort of things that I find quite fascinating is that it's, it, it seems to be one of those things where if it works for you, stick with it. But it's hard to find the thing that works for you, isn't it, at the end of the day? Yeah, it's kind of like in business, you get mass customization where you get everyone has to do sort of the same thing, but there's variations within the theme. Yeah. And that's actually very important for people to remember here is that what we say are not rules, they're principles mm. or guidelines. And so whether that person is eating sweet potatoes or pretzels or drinking a, an expensive sports drink, they can achieve the same principle or fulfill or meet whatever it is, the same principle in three different ways. Yeah. So there is individual variation within an overall theme. But then, of course, there are also exceptions to the overall. So then you will find people who absolutely swear that they are completely unaffected by not having any carbs at all. Yeah. And they will have milk for a marathon or an ultra marathon. Yeah, I um, heard that. Which has carbs, by the way. Uh, so it's not maybe the best <laughs> example. But um, you, so we will say things in the next 45 minutes and you'll, maybe you'll be listening to this and saying, but that doesn't apply to me. And that could well, very well be the case. Mm. So there is a lot of research on this. It's probably one of the most researched areas of sports science and physiology. And that research has given us a good idea of what works the best for the most, but not necessarily for all. And then you have to become your own scientist and play and experiment in your training sessions to understand your needs and preference preferences bold and underlined because that makes all the difference mm. um, you can know the theory but if it, if it doesn't suit you then it's useless and then figure out for yourself what works best within what we're about to say and when you say principles i mean do the principles generally apply although the variations are different i mean is it if people want to take something out of this podcast do you want them to remember the principles because they are scientific and fairly good in terms of what you can believe yes i think so mm. um and there'll be dispute because we live at a time now when everything's polarized and so there'll be low carbers and high carbers yeah. and so on and say no 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 that what you're saying is actually outdated and where's the show me the money that big farmers given you to say this stuff i've never <laughs> seen any myself yes so it's a quite a polarized issue which is maybe why we're in our fourth season before we've tackled it but there, there are principles and so there are i don't know four or five things that you need to be able to say yes i'm doing that and i'm avoiding those because there are some things that can trip you up mm. But if you're able to say those, then you will be, nutritionally, you'll be succeeding. You'll be fueling yourself appropriately. Um, and so maybe, maybe before we get onto the details, the, the key is there's no such thing as good or bad or right or wrong. There's appropriate and inappropriate, maybe, is the best mm. way to think of it. You know, suitable for that occasion mm. is the way to think about this. And maybe suitable for that occasion for you, specifically as the listener. Mm. Well, we haven't been sponsored or taken over or given money by anything from a big pharmaceutical company or anybody. And Bill Gates hasn't injected us with a weird big sugar, sugar or something like that. So we're pretty independent in what we're going to talk about. So let's let's break it down right from the simplest basic form. We talk about fuels. What are the categories of fuels that we need to know? So unlike cars, we have three. You know, your car runs on one. <laughs> 
Maybe it's got two tanks. We've got many tanks of three types of fuels. We have carbohydrates, so that's sugar. Glycogen is the storage form. So we store in our muscles and in our liver. Those are the two primary tanks that store sugar as glycogen. When we exercise, glycogen is broken down into glucose and that's what provides energy. Number two, fat. Again, there are two main storage tanks, as it were, fat. One is in the muscle, in what are called intra, inside, muscular triglycerides, that's fat cells. And then you also have adipose tissue, which need no explanation because everyone always wants to get rid of them. <laughs> so adipose tissue is by far the most abundant source of energy we have. And so in fact, when humans go on hunger strikes and don't eat anything at all, adipose tissue is so abundant it keeps us alive for weeks. <laughs> That's how much we have of it. Yeah. Never in danger of running out, unlike carbohydrates. And then the final one is protein. Stored everywhere, but I suppose for this conversation, primarily in muscle. And what happens then is if you have a major energy deficit, which is to say your energy demand is much, much higher than your energy supply, proteins can become a source of fuel because we can break them down and then turn their building blocks, which are called amino acids, into energy. So we can right. oxidize the amino acids that make a protein. And when you see, again, hunger strikes or just to get, bring it back to athletics and, and exercise achievements, polar explorers, I spoke last time about the Robert Scott and his compatriots, they lost 40% of their body mass. There is a significant degree of protein breakdown in order to achieve that weight loss. So that's what happens when you get nutrition wrong for long enough. It's not, that's not at play in even most ultramarathons. So um, you don't want to be going into a space where you're using protein as fuel, really? No, you don't. And, and, and people have always known that. And that's why Scott and his team, when they try to get to the South Pole, they packed rations full of protein. And it turned out to be a mistake. Because what you really want to do is keep the energy supply high because that's what causes the protein to be broken down. Make sense? Yeah. Your body doesn't really go into the net oxidation. I say net because when we exercise, we do break down protein. There is mm. oxidation of amino acids during exercise. So when you and I go on our bike rides, a marathon runner, whatever it is, we, there is amino acid oxidation. But it's not net oxidation because protein synthesis happens at the same rate as breakdown. Make sense? Right, yeah. So it's almost like we put those amino acids back into the circulating pool, but then when exercise stops, they just get taken back up and used again. It's only when we push ourselves so far into energy deficit that that amino acid pool starts to actually be spent. It's kind of like your reserves mm. in your bank account. And as long as you've got some income in every month, you never touch them. But if you're unemployed for six months, now you start spending them, and that's not good. Yeah. So that's the short answer. Now, we, we do have other forms um, of energy, sources of energy, for example, ketones, which we'll talk about, no doubt. Lactate is a source of energy. But they, you know, ketones come from fat oxidation. Mm. Lactate comes from carbohydrate oxidation. So the simple answer is that there are three, carbs, fat, and protein. But, but really, if you get it right, it's carbs and fat. Well, let's now that you've mentioned it, let's talk about those ketones and mm. uh, what's the other one you're talking about? Uh, lactate. Lactate. Mm. I mean, I've obviously working on the magazines and runners all in bison. We talk a lot about how lactate can become a fuel. Mm. So when you're 
burning your legs up a hill, actually you can use that fuel effectively if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, ketones is controversial because very much involved in the cycling space at the moment around the world, a lot of professional athletes. Mm. And in fact, you can buy ketone supplements now, which you can take that supposedly up your ketone level. Give us, give us a, good, a bit of a description about, first of all, let's start with ketones. Is it, you know, as they suspect in the, in the cycling fraternity at the moment where people are taking ketones so they can reduce their fats so that they are very super lean athletes when they're climbing, therefore more efficient mm. as athletes? The, okay, so the evidence on the ketones in those athletes is actually quite slim still. In fact, there was a study, it was either last year or the year before, I've lost track, that showed no benefit, which is interesting. Really? But but I'm of the opinion that if those elite athletes are, have, have used it for a number of years and are continuing to use it, it's because they believe there is a benefit. Now, is that placebo or no? I don't know. But I suspect that there probably might be at that level, for those athletes, there might be a, a, ti- a tiny benefit. And the way it would provide benefit, let's, let's talk theory first. So ketone bodies are produced when fat oxidation rates are very high. So we break down fats, triglycerides, fatty acids, and when that happens at very high rates, the end consequence is a number of these uh, molecules called ketone bodies. Acetone is one of them. There's, a, there's another one, beta-hydroxybutyrate, I think is the name. So that's when, when, a, when a dietitian or a doctor assesses you and you're ketotic, it's because you are oxidizing fats at an unnaturally high rate, which happens, for example, in diabetics because they can't break down sugars and so they overconsume fat. Make sense? Yeah. yeah. Now, for the purposes of sport, the theory is that if you can use ketones at the muscle, then you're getting energy from that source and it would then have a carbohydrate sparing effect. And also, ketones would be able to provide energy. I think to, I think the brain is able to use ketone bodies as well, which makes sense because if you're in a state of survival because of starvation, the brain normally wants glucose as its as first priority or preference. If you don't have that, because as, as we've said already, I think I mentioned, the glucose stores run out quick, fairly quickly. The fat stores never do. So yeah. the brain has adapt, evolved to, to be able to use those ketone bodies as well. So the idea behind supplementation with ketones is very similar to the idea behind supplementation with many other uh, products and substances. It's what can I do to decrease the reliance on carbohydrates and not compromise energy delivery at the cell? That's what all of them are doing. There's 20 years ago, it was medium chain triglycerides. You could get these short fat molecules that you would be able to take in and they would provide that source of energy. Mm. That never really took hold because they caused people to be quite sick, <laughs> gastrointestinal issues and so on. Uh, it's, it's the same with many other dietary interventions is can I increase how much I rely on fats and then as a trade-off need less from carbs, which is going to be beneficial. So that's, that's where all that comes from. So, so, so yeah, so an athlete who has a very low carb diet is going to be producing ketones and using them for fuel. And the idea was we can supplement with this and achieve benefits without being low carb. And the benefit is that you can use them as fuel more mm. effectively if you're supplementing with them. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And all as right. yet, I th- in my opinion, sound theory, but not yet enough evidence to say, yes, it definitely works. But the fact that they've been used for five or six years now in professional cycling, I suspect yeah. there's, there's, they'll know that there's a benefit there that hasn't yet been shown in a lab study. 
So I know Yumba Visma were famously using ketones at one point. So I'm not sure whether they have continued with that program, but at one mm. stage there was lots of talk about them using ketones. So. Yeah, I'm pretty yeah. sure that most of those top teams have either tried or mm. are using them right now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so just to very briefly, because we have to move, lots to move on to yeah. today, but lactate, I mean, that, again, as I said, it's one of those things where, again, it's also, it's also a fuel, isn't it? Lactate's a fuel. So lactate was, was first identified probably almost 100 years ago, and it was a molecule that was labeled the bad guy of metabolism, um, in part because back then they didn't have all the tools we have now, and so all they were able to measure was in amphibian frog muscles. If you stimulated that frog muscle, everything was cool, but if you stimulated it too much, it failed, and at the moment that it failed, you could measure this thing that they eventually called lactate. And so they put two and two together and got five, and said lactate's causing the failure. And that, that stuck. I mean, you know, you as, an, as a magazine editor, you would have seen many times lactate poisoning the muscle. That was, mm-hmm. the, that was its um, reputation. But in about probably the late 80s, 90s, a very famous physiologist called George Brooks started to do these much more um, insightful studies using much better equipment and technology. And he was able to find that lactate shuttles from one compartment to the next. So it's produced in the muscle. It then goes into the blood, it's taken to other organs, and it's actually used as a source of energy in those organs. And so rather than being the bad guy that inhibits exercise, lactate's probably the thing that keeps it going because without the ability to form lactate, the whole process of carboxidation would grind to a halt because what happens is we break glucose down in a series of steps that eventually gives us ATP. Somewhere along that pathway, if Let me you see if I can get this right, adenose triphosphate, almost adenosine, adenosine. That's a adenosine. <laughs> and so adenosine ATP is what we need to power muscle contraction. That's the mm-hmm. guy that gives us the energy. It's made off of the glucose, the fatty acids, and the and the amino acids potentially, mm-hmm. right? So glucose is broken down in a. You can almost imagine a conveyor belt in a factory, and it's a molecule is handed from one station to the next. Yeah. And at each handover, it's changed very slightly. And one of those changes forms a molecule called pyruvate. And then the pyruvate can either go into this process that it continues down the oxidation pathway to produce ATP, which is good. But if the, if the rate at which pyruvate is, is coming is too high and the demand is really high, then that, that person handling that pyruvate in our, in our analogous factory situation can't deal with it. So he basically palms it off as lactate somewhere else. So right. lactate's almost the way that we deal with a bottleneck. Right. And so all of a sudden this pyruvate gets converted to lactate by an enzyme, enzyme called lactate dehydrogenase. And that's really important because it allows the metabolism to keep going. Otherwise, it would literally just jam to a halt at that point, right? Right. Um, what then happens is that that lactate is very mobile. It's a small molecule. It very easily escapes the muscle cell. It goes to the kidneys, the liver, wherever it is. And it goes the other way. So now it goes back from lactate to pyruvate, and then it can be used as a source of energy in those tissues. So it's a very clever system where lactate actually becomes the enabler of the metabolic pathways. So, it, I mean, in simple terms, if I'm running along and my legs are starting to really burn, and I'm saying to myself, this is an indication that I should slow down because my legs are burning, mm. in, in, in simple terms, that's not true. That's just lactate yeah, coming through as a consequence of exercise. Yeah, we'd measure lactate levels are probably quite high because the, the point at which your legs start burning is quite high intensity exercise. Yeah. 
and lactate is there when exercise intensity is high. It doesn't mean it's causing the, the burn. So what's happened there is we've measured A and B and we've inferred that they both are caused by C. <laughs> or, or that A causes B rather, is that, let me get that right. We've measured high lactate, we've seen that you're slowing down and your legs are burning and we've assumed that the lactate's the cause. Right. And it's not. There could be an independent process that's causing both those things. And that's probably the case. And so the intensity drives the rate at which you need glucose to be oxidized. As I exercise faster and faster, my power output's going up, my running speed, or I'm going up a steep climb and I'm trying to hold the pace, I now need to produce ATP so much more quickly than I did a minute or two earlier. Mm. And that's what's causing a number of metabolic changes. So phosphate accumulation as we carve that ATP into energy, ADP and PI, uh, calcium potentially accumulation in the muscles, hydrogen ion accumulation as a result of these shuttles that are trying to keep the balance the same from one side on one side of the membrane and the other, if that, if you, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. We can leave it at that high level stuff. And so, so yes, lactate is there almost as a flag that something's happening in the metabolic system, but it's not necessarily the thing causing what we feel. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's, not, it's not the brain saying to the muscle you need to slow down it's just a consequence of exercise well that's we feel it as pain we because, it as it, pain, because yeah. it's being interpreted at the level of the brain and right. there's this afferent feedback from me- metabolic and mechanical receptors mm. in the muscle and yes we'll, we'll feel that as pain but that signal is not lactate mm. it's, uh, it's all the other things hydrogen, calcium, mm. phosphate so it's possible to push through lactate in other words I suppose that's the, the nub of it all isn't it it's, it's possible to when you feel that, you can keep pushing. It's not your body saying, yeah. slow down. It's a consequence. It's Up to a point, because again, the lactate is a, is a marker of the fact that you are now exercising beyond what, yeah. we, what for you would be steady state. Right. And by definition, the moment we go higher than our steady state exercise, we're now in borrowed time. <laughs> right. Because but it's no longer steady state. Yeah. This, is, this is a 10 minutes before I'm done. Right. Task. So it is actually a marker of, in, of exercise that you can't just keep going. No, but it's not yeah. that you're pushing through lactate. Right. It's just that you're pushing through all the things that also are associated with having yeah. high lactate. Is that, with you. Like, yeah. yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. 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 So let's talk about when we need these fuels because mm. we're talking specifically about endurance athletes and endurance sport at this stage. And from my very limited knowledge on this, obviously we know that sugars are the fast-burning guys. In other words, when you have intensity, you want to be able to burn something as quickly available. Therefore, glycogen and sugars are there. Exactly. Whereas the fat is the slow-burning stuff. Yeah. Is, it, is it as simple as that? Pretty much. The key is rate. I mean, that's what it's about. Uh, how quickly can I get the energy to the muscle? That's the point. Yeah. And carbohydrates are used very quickly in comparison with fats. Because when we, when we need to get fat to ATP... It involves, I think there were nine steps. Mm. You know, that fatty acid is sitting inside your adipose tissue or your muscle. It's first got to be activated, then mobilized, then transported from the adipose tissue to the muscle. When it gets there, it has to be offloaded. So it's got to go from one taxi to the next. It's going to get inside the muscle cell. Then it's got to get inside the mitochondria. Then it's got to be broken down. Then it's got to be oxidized. So in actual fact, from start to finish... Adipose tissue is is time consuming and less efficient. Even though every gram of fat provides you with nine calories compared to only four per gram of carbs. Mm. And that's why that's why the prospect of being a better fat burner is so enticing. Because if I could make that process from start to finish more efficient and more effective, I would be able to get so much more energy out so much more quickly. Yeah. 
Um, and, and that's what everybody talks about, isn't it? And, I'm a fat burner. And you know? the fact that I'm never going to run out of it. Mm. I mean, I've got two hours of carbs in me, depending on how hard I go, maybe less, maybe a little bit more. But I've got two weeks, two months sometimes of fat. <laughs> so so the, the prospect of being a better fat burner is very attractive. But to answer your original question, it's carbs for when the demand is high. Because the rate is set by muscle contraction. You know, you're consuming ATP in order to power muscle contraction. And again, if you think about that factory, there's a foreman at the end of the chain saying, guys, send more. We need more here. If we don't get more here, you're going to fail. Your muscles are going to lock up. You're going to tie up. Mm. This is going to be a disaster. So get energy now. Yeah. And then they say, well, where's that energy best coming from? Carbs, because it's quicker. And so we Until start. Until it runs out. Y- yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so we start breaking down glycogen in the muscle. Glycogen gets converted to glucose. There's an enzyme that does that. Uh, we break it down in the liver, um, and then it gets released into the bloodstream. And that's important because the brain needs it, and the muscles need it. And so, so the process of sugar being converted into energy as opposed to fat being in- converted into energy is a longer process. Therefore, that's why there is that difference in the way those fuels are used. Fat being longer. Fat being longer. Correct, yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. It's just more taxis it has to get into yeah taxis yeah. have got to get into and doors it's got to pass through you know yeah, so yeah. to get from where it starts to where it's going is i'm i'm going to be misquoting now but it's four taxis and four doors whereas mm. glucose it's really right there mm. unless it's in the liver and then it's one one door and it's in the circulation you know fat needs albumin for instance for mm. instance and so one of the things that's been found is that when we exercise really hard like high intensity short duration the circulation changes, as we've discussed. We, we send the blood where it's needed, which mm. is muscle and skin. And we, therefore, because it's not an infinite supply, we divert it away from where it's not needed. And one of those places is the adipose tissue. So there, there are studies that have found that when we do very high intensity exercise, the fat cells actually get trapped because they can't get out. It's as though, it's as though there's a massive traffic jam and all the cars have been sent somewhere else and now you've got these stranded adipose cells and they they can't so so yes that's that's the point is that the body's going into like an emergency space isn't it where it's going like okay i need fuel fast we're going to shut down everything else and just exactly. make sure we get the energy from the fast exactly available. and it's all being mediated by adrenaline and noradrenaline which is the sympathetic fight or flight hormones mm. and so that's that changes the circulation it changes the hormones we no longer have insulin in the circulation we switch it off the adrenaline drives the oxidation of carbs. And so it's actually quite a beautiful system where the rate sets the demand, which is then met by the supply. And the body is clever enough to say, if the supply is this, it's coming mostly carbs. If the supply is, is that and that being lower, mm-hmm. we, can, we can do this on fats. And so what you then get is, a, is what's called the crossover concept, where at low exercise intensities, most of our energy comes from fat, with a small proportion from carbs. So let's call it 90-10. 90% from fat, 10% from carbs. That's at walking pace. As we speed up... So it's not possible to be 100% fat. No, it is. At at, at complete rest, your carb contributions will be very, very low. Maybe not 100. Because when you wake up in the morning, your liver glycogen is depleted, even if you've eaten the night before. And that's because your brain needs glucose. And that glucose is coming from the... From the uh, the liver. Okay, so the so, brain needs glucose, not necessarily doesn't use fat. 
uh, no, unless it's ketone bodies when right. you are completely glucose de- deplete okay. and then and your liver glycogen is finished. And then in so that we're case, always using glucose to some extent, but it de- yeah. it's, a, it's a scale of how much we use. It. It's not a line. No, that's what I'm saying. No, yeah. it's not. It's yeah. a spectrum. It's a dimmer right. switch, not an on-off switch. Right. Okay. And so what happens is, so let's let's say walking very gently through the shopping mall, <laughs> ten and nine, ninety ten. Which I hate by the way. Fats, fats, carbs, <laughs> <laughs> fats, carbs. If you eat carbs, your proportion from carbs goes up because the body burns what it has available. Right. If you're in a fasted state because you ate the night before and you haven't had breakfast and it's now lunchtime the day after, maybe it's 96.4% because your body doesn't have the carbs, it therefore burns the fat. It's clever is it only this way. Bur- is it not but burning based on intensity rather than what's available? No, both. 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 It's, okay. so it's I thought set- it was only intensity. No, so it's set that the... the the main driver of which fuel tank you access is the rate demand at the muscle level, which is the intensity. Yeah. But within that, there is play depending on how much you have available and how adapted you are to use the different fuel okay. stores. Right. So a high fat meal would drive fat oxidation and a high carb meal for a short time afterwards drives the use of carbohydrates. The body's clever. It uses what it has. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so... As we then walk faster and break into a slow jog, the proportion from fat starts coming down. Now we're at 70, with 30% coming from carbs. Yeah. As we get a little bit quicker, now it's a moderate jog, which we call 50%. It's 60-40 fats, carbs. And then at some point, usually between 60 and 65%, they cross over and it's 50-50. So now half my energy is carb and half of it's coming from fat. And so what's happening is, as we go harder, more and more is coming from carbohydrates because it needs to, as we've discussed, right? You, yeah. You got, you got all that. Yeah. And less is coming from fat. And this is all mediated by the sympathetic nervous system. Adrenaline is driving carb oxidation because it's activating the enzymes. It's, it's switching off the enzymes from, from the fat side of the equation. Then we get to 80, 85%. Now it's looking like a mirror image. Now it's 80% carbs, 20% fat, until eventually there's hardly any fat use and it's only carbohydrates. Okay. So, so you can almost visualize if, if you had an X, a Y axis here, this is a graph of percentage energy from the different stores as a function of intensity, it looks like an X. Yeah. Because the one's going up over time, the other one's coming down and they cross over in the middle and that's called the crossover concept. So the important thing to remember there, and this is why it's quite a good lesson for me, is that there isn't there isn't this line, this turn where it's suddenly it's 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 all a gradual process in terms of carb, mm. uh, carb or fat yeah. Um, yeah. use. Whereas I think a lot of the a lot of the experts or a lot of the hype that we see around uh, certain diets and fuels is that there's this almost like this point where if you go to that mm. point, you're going to be burning glycogen and sugars, and you can't go beyond that. But it's yes. not like that. And you have a you have a fat yeah. burning zone, and you suddenly yeah. switch. And I remember I remember reading. You have you, a, so what you say instead of having a fat burning zone, you have a majority fat burning zone. Yeah, would be exactly. A better description. Exactly. And if yeah. you wanted to be really literal about what I just explained, the first sixty five percent is the fat burning zone because it's it's right up to that point. It's fifty fifty. So it's fifty one forty nine. It's fat, mm. right? Mm. But it's mm. not really the way the the way it's worded. It sounds like there's a, there's a switch that gets flicked, and suddenly yes. now I go into fat stores, and that doesn't happen. Right. It's a spectrum the whole time, and it's a spectrum of carbs and of fat. So when I talk about that X, it's it's not a they're not straight lines because like most things in physiology, they look exponential. So it's a mm. curve, mm. but it's a curved X, mm. and and it's not you know it's not a step. It's not a staircase. It's a slope. 
And so that's, that's the fundamental point. And what, what's really interesting then is that your habitual diet shifts that, that curved X, left or right. Your training, your fitness shifts that curve left or right. Mm-hmm. So for instance, if you, if you started now with like a three-month big endurance block and you worked on your aerobic oxidative capacity, you know, that low-intensity base-type zone training, mm. you would shift your curves to the right, which means that you would rely on fats for longer. So you're, where, where today, for example, let's say that you, Mike Finch, could go out at 60% of your max and you'd be 50-50, in three months' time, you'd be 50-50 at 70% of your max. So in other words, your wow. relative contribution of fats goes up as you get fitter and more adapted and trained. Make sense? When you say more adapted, in other words, you have to do the training that encourages fat adaption, mm. or just by getting fitter do you become more fat adapted? Those two things are the same. Are they? The, tr- okay. the training that makes you fitter is making you fitter by virtue of driving fat adaptation. Okay. <laughs> because... The training that makes you fitter is increasing your uh, mitochondrial capacity. You remember you, mm. you did the ATP earlier. Remember what mitochondria are? Yes. Um, ad, ad, <laughs> adenase, no. no. No, that was ATP. Uh, ATP you remember sorry, what yes. mitochondria are? Yes, yes. yes. So the, 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 the power cells of the, That's right. of the so, body. Yeah. So all these enzymes. So earlier I used the analogy about a factory and a conveyor belt. The mitochondria is that factory. Yeah. And every little step along that conveyor belt is an enzyme that is housed inside the mitochondria. So in order for us to be fat burners, we need high mitochondrial mass because the the enzymes that are going to enable us to turn fatty acids eventually into ATP are in that mitochondria. So with training, we develop more mitochondria. We Literally, we make more of them. And is it true that that mitochondria developed when you were training in a lower intensity? Yeah, so it's always... They're always developing in response to the training stress, but low intensity training, aerobic training, oxidative stress is what causes that. So, so therefore, a fit endurance trained athlete has got more enzymes to be able to turn fat into fuel than someone who's unfit or himself six months before. So, why was I talking about that? Well, because with training, that crossover then happens later. So. Right. A fit athlete. So when we watch the upcoming um, classics in cycling and we've seen these guys on the bike for five, six hours at a time, they are, they are exercising at a high intensity without needing to access their carb stores like you or I would, right. even at the same relative intensity. That's a, I mean, obviously, if I'm, on that, if I'm in that peloton in Paris Bay and I'm having to ride 350 watts, I've got two minutes in me and I'm done. Yes. They, they've but got two them, hours. Yeah. Yeah. But, but relatively, you know, they're at 85% of VO2 max. They're still using more fat than I would be right. at, at yeah. my 85 because they're just that good at it. That's a very important fact, actually, mm. that people understand that. Yeah, so... That's what training does. It turns us into fat-burning machines. Uh, also, we, get, we also get better at burning carbs and protein, by the way. There's evidence that the enzymes that can burn or oxidize amino acids go up with training. So everything gets better. But you see that effect most with fat because that's the one that's limited in the first place by how much mitochondria and, and aerobic uh, oxidative capacity you have. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Shara, now that we've talked uh, about the different fuel sources, I think one of the questions, and people talk about it in marathons and Ironman events, any long sort of endurance event is hitting the wall, bonking, whatever you want to call it. There's lots of talk about that. Um, it's a, it's, if you work in a magazine like Runners Auto Bicycling with it anywhere, anywhere in the world, there's, that's probably the number one story that you get the hits on, on your website. So give us an idea of what it means to, to hit the wall. What is, what does hitting the wall actually mean? So in this context, it means running out of energy, fuel tank running dry. And we know by now that the only fuel tank that can run dry is the carbohydrate one. Well, there are two of them. It's either the liver glycogen is depleted or the muscle glycogen is depleted. And in the early days, when they first developed the techniques to measure what was happening in the liver and the muscle, because they could do biopsies and mm. radioact, uh, like doubly labeled, labeled techniques to check where the glucose was and wasn't, there was some debate around whether the, the concept of hitting the wall or going hyperglycemic was the consequence of what's happening in the muscle. So hyperglycemic is? Low sugar. Low sugar, okay. Just, so, just break that word down. So hypo-low glycemia, no. meaning sugar, sugar you know, okay. like the old glycemic okay. index. Right. So, and, and, and it's actually interesting to, to look. That one of the things that's happened in the last couple of years is you can now get portable glucose molec- uh, molecules, portable glucose monitors, sorry. Yes. Um, so in the same way that you can measure your heart rates, you can now measure your glucose levels. Incredible, isn't it? And uh, it took a while for them Froomore to be… uses one, I think. Does he? Yeah. So, yeah, so for a while, it, it took, it, it, they weren't valid. I mean, they were, they were measuring something, but no one was absolutely sure that it was the right thing. But I think they've gotten now to the point that they're actually valid. Now the question is, are they useful? Because does it help you really to know? Um, Sounds very useful to me. Well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm <laughs> not convinced, actually. But let's say you go out and you exercise and it's an easy one-hour ride or run, whatever it is. What you'll find is that your blood glucose level sits at a base level of, say, 5 and it goes up to five and a half, six initially, because when we start exercise, our stress response kicks in. And so the adrenaline and the noradrenaline that I spoke of earlier suddenly send their little signals to say to the body, start producing energy. And we do that. And the consequence is that we send the, the glucose that was stored in the liver into the bloodstream. And that's mm-hmm. what we see. We measure a pickup in it. And then it kind of stays there because we, we achieve a new level of balance. You know, it's like changing the setting on your air conditioner from 18 degrees to 24. It's higher than it was, but it's still this constant. And it's only if we go for hours without replenishing that that then starts to be under strain. And then what happens is the glucose levels will start dropping because our liver glycogen is starting to be depleted and we can no longer put that glucose into the bloodstream. And when that happens, and this is, I'm sure, a sensation familiar to everyone, we start getting lightheaded, tunnel vision, maybe a little bit sweaty, weak. We feel like we're exercising comfortably, but we can't go any harder. Have you had this feeling? Yeah, I mean, I can, often people talk about whether you have a, having a proper hitting the wall versus having just a bit of a, a, a dip. And I remember a few years ago um, going out on a ride and having a proper proper sugar depletion where I literally could hardly turn the pedals over and ended up sitting outside a, a supermarket down the road eating I think two Chelsea buns and a half litre coke yes. and then I was able to get back on the bike within half an hour after that but when I say I couldn't turn the pedals over I literally was struggling to get one foot over the, yeah, yeah. Over it's the top ama- of the it's pedal. an amazing yeah. feeling it really is it's it's uh, it's diabol- and it's quite scary actually because I guess that's the question because it feels 
like you are in real trouble. Like yeah, physically, does. you're in danger here. And if you weren't in a city where you could get a Chelsea by not two yeah. and a half a litre Coke, you might be. Um, mm. I've had it as, as well. I mean, I remember cycling around the point and I got to Cape Point Gate and luckily there was a tailwind behind and it's largely downhill because I couldn't pedal. I had to walk up the hills. Yeah. And all you want to do is lie down on the side of the road and have a nap. That's how <laughs> I felt. It's and so that's that's a classic manifestation of like being super low in sugar. So now your blood glucose is really low, and because that's your brain's preferred, so that's why you have these central perception issues arise, like sleepiness and drowsiness, dizziness. You'll see it when you, if you go on YouTube and look up famous examples, uh, dramatic marathon finishes. You'll see what happens to people when they get yeah, really yeah. hyperglycemic. Not to be confused with heat stroke, which we spoke about two episodes yeah. back. But they can be confused, can't they? Yeah, they do look yeah. the same. But I mean, once you're there on the side of the road, you'll know. Yeah. I mean, it's fairly obvious when there's a heat stroke compared to a sugar issue. So why doesn't and your body in that situation then then not return to fats, for instance, to well, keep you fueled? It's trying, but by that stage, it's it's too late. You've gone past the point of no return. Mm. Um, Guarantee that there was probably for half an hour before that you were pushing through something you shouldn't have been. <laughs> mm. um, but but remember, the rate is setting the demand. Yeah. And so you're asking the muscles to contract and produce the same power of 180, 200 watts as you were an hour or two earlier. But it, And it can only do that by oxidizing glucose. And then eventually the glucose gets to such a low level that mm. you, you just can't power normal brain function anymore. Yeah. Um, and is the only solution then well, is to ingest carbohydrates? Yeah, and you could, you could have gotten off your bike and walked. Yes, right? yes, could have. Yeah. Because there's enough fat that the fat can do that job. Right. So in answer to your question from a minute or so ago, your body could, but it would just require you to basically stop exercise and just walk. Because then you'd go back to that 90-10 point on that spectrum, right? Where 90% comes from fats and you've mm. got that and you only need 10% from carbs and you've got just enough to get you to the shop. Yeah, and then and then it resolves quickly, right? Yes, you it get does. back on the bike oh, twenty minutes later. The moment that glucose, because remember the, the the adage is, if it's in the stomach and the intestine, it's still outside the body. Mm. So the moment it gets from the intestine into the blood, problem solved, problem gone. Solved, yeah. And you can actually get on the bike and you feel like nothing ever happened. Mm. So, <laughs> anyway, I, so I read a story a while back saying that if you once you start ingesting carbohydrates, just with the fact that the carbohydrate is going into your mouth your body then responds to that even though it actually hasn't gone into your system you don't have to swallow it for there to you be don't a benefit have to swallow it. Yeah, yeah that was a famous that, series of studies yeah there are now at last check i looked there were 15 studies and 10 of them had found a significant effect from only um, rinsing the mouth with a carb so the body's going oh here's some sugar so there actually- must be there must be sensors in the mouth that tell yeah. it that there's sugar connected to the brain and then the brain thinks there's carbs available so that's that's really interesting yeah. Because it means that can cut both ways. You could you could deceive yourself into thinking you've got energy, you don't. But you can also benefit because you don't really need to to have a drink on hand to swallow. No. You can just rinse and have small sips frequently and create the perception that your tanks are full. If, you t- if, you, if your tank is empty at that point, though, and you have filled the brain, I guess it won't take long before you start feeling bad again. No, it won't, because eventually like, there's still there's nothing there. Yeah, you know? So yeah. there's emperor's clothes. I mean, at some stage, and when it, when it's it, revealed. If they measure the, the glycogen that's in the liver and the blood at that point with it, this hitting the wall scenario happens, is it zero? I mean, is it like... No, it's, and it differs for different people. So there are different sensitivities. And mm-hmm. I remember from those studies, because as I said earlier, there was a debate or dispute around whether it's the muscle glycogen that runs out or the liver. Mm. But it depends on the circumstances and the situation. Sometimes it's the liver and then you get the 
central hyperglycemia because the brain is denied its sugars. Mm. Other times it's the muscle hyperglycemia. Um, but the liver, so sometimes you can keep the blood glucose levels normal and deplete the muscle. You still mm. fail, mm. but you don't fail at zero. You fail at a very low concentration, which is a, a range because some people fail with half of what other people take to fail. And mm. some people can only deal with, let's say, concentration of 20, whereas for most people it's eight. Mm. So sensitivities make a big difference to that, yeah. So for people going out and doing a long, either an Ironman marathon, ultramarathon, that sort of thing, when you get to that point where you know you've run out of sugar, is it safe to say that once you replenish that sugar and you do so, you will probably recover and can continue? It's not the end of the race yeah, necessarily. No, you can recover. Yeah. You, might not, you might not recover to how you would have been had you mm-hmm. avoided that situation in the first place because yeah. there's some evidence that your carb intake, for instance, prevents muscle damage which is really very interesting. There have yeah. been studies in these ultramarathon runners in, in Spain where they did this four-hour simulated trail race and they taught these ultramarathon runners how to consume 120 grams of carbs an hour, which is a ridiculous amount. I mean, it, like, guarantee most of you listening to this are in the 40 to 50 grams an hour. So now you've got to increase that threefold. And what they found was that if you did that, you got less muscle damage and you got less neuromuscular fatigue after that four-hour run. So the point I'm trying to make is that if you, if you under-consume and if you under-fuel, particularly with carbs, you, you probably are causing muscular consequences that you, you don't recover from very quickly. You, yeah. you do, but it's not like you can just drink that half-liter Coke and you'll be back to normal, normal. You're, you're back to good enough to ride back home, but you're yeah. not... Yeah, you, let's just say you wouldn't want to do it in a race. Yeah. 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 So that leads me on to our next, um, and this is an area where I find it enormously confusing, is to understand, you talk very briefly about X amount of carbohydrates per hour, and we run stories in Runners World and Bicycle here in South Africa where we talk about you must you know, have 10 kilograms, 10 grams per one kilogram of mass per hour, that sort mm. of thing. It's a very broad question to ask you, but... How does one understand what you need to do in terms of your fueling strategy? If, if you're saying that you need to ingest a certain amount, if you look at a, a bottle of an energy drink and it says this carbohydrate, ha- this drink has X amount of carbohydrates in it, and therefore if you mix it like this, if I take five mm. sips out of this every 15 minutes, I should get my carbohydrate intake for that hour. I mean, is, it e- is there an easy way to explain that? Uh, I hope so. I'll try. The... So, so again, the, the, the carbohydrate requirements during exercise are determined largely by the intensity, which is a function of duration. Yeah. So 30 minutes of exercise is assumed, if it's a race situation, obviously, it's assumed to be much more intense than an hour, which of course is much more intense than running a marathon over two, three hours, which is much more intense than running a ultra trail, which is going to take 15 hours potentially. Yeah. So, so the main factor is probably, the, the easiest way to think about it is what, how long am I going for? Because that drives what I need to fuel with. Anything less than 45 minutes doesn't need fueling. Right. Um, if it's a hot day and you want to take something with just to keep the lips wet and from thir- being thirsty, and that happens to have some carbs in, no problem. It's not going to do any harm, but it's not really necessary. Mm. When we get up to 45 minutes, an hour to two hours, then you probably need 30 to 60 grams per hour of carbs. You, you could probably still get away with it because, again, that carb, our carb tanks are full enough that we can power an hour and a half to two hours of exercise. Mm. 
but you're probably still slightly better off. There is now, the research suggests there's a dose response where the more carbs I consume, the better I perform. Mm-hmm. That's that's the case. I mean, there's one study where they looked at a range from 30 all the way to, uh, no, from zero all the way to 60 grams per hour. And the people who take 60 grams per hour do better than those who take 30 who do better than those who take none, right? right. So you, you probably want to try and get at least 30 grams an hour in. And how do, how do you know that? I mean, how do you work that out? So, we'll, yeah, so we'll, we'll, I'll come to that in a moment. For longer durations, so now we're talking marathon and upwards, you probably want to try and get as much as tolerable. And I say that because that's where the thing becomes limiting. Because the, the, from a practical perspective, carbohydrate oxidation rates, how much we burn, is limited by how much we can get into the blood from the gut. Right. And, and that is uh, limited by biochemistry and physiology, which I'll get to shortly. So there are now, and I mentioned this, the Spanish marathon runners, they learned through training to consume 120 grams an hour which is crazy high. You know, the, the American College of Sports Medicine is like the, the body that drives knowledge in this field. Their recommendation used to be three, 30 to 60. And that was based on a number of studies and labs that had given athletes 100, 150, even 180 grams of carbs an hour to the point that almost all of them throw up and get sick. <laughs> mm. But they measure how much they oxidize and it was capped at 60. Mm. So there was this theory for a long time that said humans can at most only burn one gram per minute, 60 grams per hour. that's all they measured. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that was literally the limit. And it didn't matter if you gave the person 60 or 100 or 150, the, the oxidation rate was 60. So that was really interesting. So they said, okay, the rate limiting step, the weakest link in this chain must be something in the gut because you, you just didn't matter how much we gave you, that's what came out, right? So some, something in the middle was stopping it. Yeah. That something turned out to be um, something called the sodium glucose transporter because from inside your intestine to get into your blood the glucose has to be helped to cross basically there's a doorman and it's got to open the door and let the glucose in right and that doorman is the sodium glucose transporter yeah that that transporter could not deal with more than 60 grams per hour so it was the limiting step right what they then discovered, and this was relatively recent in the last sort of 15 years or so, is that if you combined glucose with fructose, the glucose could use the door and the fructose could come through the window. Okay. <laughs> so all of a sudden, you could burn more than 60. So they did a study, I think it was in the What's Netherlands. What's the difference between glucose and fructose? Just so, so glucose is the basic building block of um, sugar. But most people know that. It's grape sugar, effectively. Yeah. Fructose is fruit sugar. So they're slightly different me- metabolic chemical structures, right. but, but, they're, both but they're both simple sugars. Right. But the key difference in this context is that fructose doesn't need that GLT, SGLT, sodium glucose transporter. It uses another one called GLUT5. So now you could get both in at the same time, and then you could add the effects together. Make sense? Right. Okay. So yeah. all of a sudden, these studies started coming out. Asker Jukendrup is probably the most famous scientist who's done this work. And they were finding that they could give these athletes in labs, cyclists, they could give them 100 grams an hour and they'd burn it all, mm. having previously thought there was a limit at 60. Right. And so nowadays, Ironman triathletes, top marathon runners, the ultra marathon runners, they are literally trying everything they can to teach their bodies how to get more and more and more in because it helps. And as right. I said to you, the, the studies have shown that if you consume more carbs during exercise, the exercise is less damaging. Mm. It causes less fatigue, perception of effort is lower, neuromuscular fatigue afterwards is reduced, and muscle damage is reduced. So most of so, those gels and things that you get, I mean, mm. 
they have a combination of glucose and fructose for that reason. Then. Yeah, and also yeah. like these other maltodextrins, for instance, which is a short glucose tr- chain. Yeah, chain. Short that, glucose. Yeah. You've seen that word before, right? Yeah, yeah. So you, you you now get all these other more sophisticated versions, but they really boil down to the same thing: is can I get the simple sugars into the intestine and then from the intestine into the blood? Yeah. And that's best done at high volumes if you consume at least sixty grams of glucose plus some fructose because then they can both come in you know the glucose is using the door and the fructose is climbing through the window and you're getting them both in so okay so that's a lot of numbers and technical stuff let's let's get practical a can of coke is i think per 100 grams about 10 grams of sugar right so when i'm sitting here saying you need 60 grams an hour you would need 600 mils of coke that's a lot an hour isn't it yeah that's a you wouldn't want to drink a fizzy coke yeah six of those an hour right yeah 600 mils not six cans six, yeah. 600 mils uh powerade most people will be aware of in the states they've got gatorade we've got energade uh it's got different names in other places mm. i know in the middle east it's called pakari sweat which is quite funny <laughs> um drink some sweat the the concentration sugars in those tend to be between seven and a half and eight and a half nine percent which means what that every hundred mils of that drink contains about eight grams of sugar. So 60 grams is 800 mils, 750 mils. Right. Again, quite a lot, right? Yeah. So you can see actually that this, sure. this bar of 60 grams an hour is quite hard to get to. Yeah. And that's why earlier I said, when you're doing ultra endurance exercise, you drink as much as tolerable. Because actually, that's yeah. probably more limiting than the... Because you're not going to get to the 60 most likely. <laughs> probably not. Yeah. But if you really are serious about this, you should try. And you can teach yourself to do this, right? by the way. You, sure. There's gut training exercises. That Spanish study I mentioned earlier with the marathon runners, they put them through three weeks of like gradually more and more and more and more so that mm. three weeks later they could take 120. And the guy who did the study reported that some of them had gastro problems, but mostly they got, got away with it. Sure. So it's got to be the right type. Right. Coke is often too sweet because the concentration is so high. And the, the, the problem with high concentrations is now you get sugar sitting in the stomach and the gut. And then water goes in instead of the other way around. And then yeah. you get all sorts of nausea and bloating and gastrointestinal issues and so on. So that's not good either. <laughs> so, yeah, so you need, to, you, you need to look at the label of the product you've got, whether it's one of those powders you, you can get whether it's a gel most most gels from memory i don't use them because i find the taste quite sickly sweet yeah, i need to drink a lot of water with them yeah um but those kind of things you know corn syrup was what used to be before the yeah. before it became commercialized was corn 80s, syrup yeah, yeah. <laughs> they those tend to give you like 22 to 24 grams from memory i think mm. it's in the low 20s for sure so you need three an hour mm. It's again, it's quite a lot. It's that's a, lot. that's oh. a gel every 20 minutes. And an Ironman, you'd have to be obviously carrying, you know, guys doing six hour Ironman. Yes, that's I'm going not. to be a lot of gels that yeah, you've got to you attach to your body at some point. Correct. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. And I mean, some of the new sports drinks now have, have also capitalized on this glucose fructose combination method mm. and they can deliver higher concentrations. So you might not need, I mean, imagine what 120 grams an hour looks like. Yeah, we're we're sitting Double. here talking about sixty being quite demanding. Yeah, it's twelve cans of coke. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, not twelve cans. It's one point two liters yeah, of sorry, coke. 1.2 right? liters yeah. Can. yeah, yeah, sorry. yeah. Yeah, so that's still a lot. An that's hour. a lot. Yeah. And so, especially for runners, because there's also mechanical strain on the stomach from the mm. bouncing up and down. Very difficult. Cyclists can get away with a little bit easier than runners can. 
But you know, when we exercise, we've yes, got this. Yes, because they're not bouncing along. Yeah, we've got, you know, the gut gut function is affected for three reasons. One is stress hormones, especially mm. long duration. Mm. They don't, the, your, your normal gut function is compromised by stress. Number two is blood flow. We mm. send it, as I mentioned earlier, where it's needed, which mm. is not the stomach. Not the stomach yeah. And then the third one is mechanical stress, and that's much higher for runners than it would be for cyclists. So mm. it's a real it's a real challenge, but it's, it's it's become i'd say actually in the last decade gut training for carb ingestion has become one of the best ways to get an advantage and now the athletes that are winning ironman are doing 100 grams an hour in those races just because, so they can get used well not they're obviously doing 100 grams an hour during training to get their body used to it exactly they? yeah so it's become it's, it's, it's become built into the training program is how can i just get so much carb into my circulation not in my stomach, mm. yeah. but into the circulation. It's pointless in your stomach. You've got to get it into the body. It's outside the mm. body still. Yeah. You've got to get it in. And, and so, they will do that mostly with gels, I'm assuming, because that's the easiest way. Gels and liquids. And liquids, yeah. It's very difficult to do that if you're going to use whole foods Super or, difficult. or Coke. Yeah, especially at, at those intensities. You know, your ultra trail guy that you spoke of earlier having sweet potatoes, mm. it's not a major problem because they'll stop for five minutes at his food station yeah. and eat and chew. Yeah. But if you're in a race, you're not doing that. So it was a very. I remember watching it actually while he was eating it, and it was um, it was cooked in a bowl in a bowl, and it was just like a a mash. Mm. So he wasn't eating whole two potatoes; he was eating it as a mash. Help, yeah. yeah, but Same. that's quite a that's quite a high GI that which I was surprised at. Yeah, we'll get yeah. into a little bit about GI in a moment. Yeah, that's also important. So yeah. so the the point I guess in all of this is that there, there's been a I don't know if I'd call it a breakthrough, but certainly a, a, a shift. It used to be thought that as long as you gave your body enough that you didn't run out, you'd be good. Yeah. Now they've actually recognized that running out is the, is the last sort of point in this thing and you don't want to even get close to it. And actually, if you can deliver more to the muscle during exercise, you're actually better off. And the more you can get, the better. There's a, mm. As I mentioned, a dose response. And so they began to experiment with ways. And as I say, the, the, the best way to do this is 60 grams of glucose mm. per hour plus fructose because then you get a combined combined effect mm. and uh, that that seems to have unlocked many many benefits you know mm. and then by the way the same is true in training um they've done studies where they deliberately induce overtraining you take a group of guys who's used to cycling say eight to ten hours a week and suddenly for three weeks they're doing 15 hours a week high intensity for 15 hours yeah they're going to overtrain and if you split those athletes into two groups, one of which you give high carb or normal carb, which is, in this case, I remember it was five and a half grams per kilogram per day. This yeah. is in your normal diet. And the other group gets 10 grams per kilogram per day. The, the group getting more carbs in training doesn't fatigue anything like as quickly mm. as the group with low carbs. So by the end of the three week, or two, this was a two week block, they do time trials before and after. Low carb groups slow down by nine, ten percent. High carb group two or three percent. So, if you're doing hard training and you want to defend your training gains and recover from hard training, the, your carb ingestion over twenty four hours makes a difference, and your carb ingestion. Because we all think it's all about protein, then, don't we? But it's actually not. It's about carbs as well. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. So it's it's energy. That's you see that's the body's currency mm. is energy, and you know yeah. it's it's like. I don't know, there's no analogy that works, but, but, but you know, protein and carbs and fats all provide what the body wants. 
Yeah, mm. so it's it's an energy thing, and the, the carbs are protective against fatigue mm. and against muscle damage, as I've said. So, yeah, this sounds like a great ad for carbs, but that's the reality. That's what all the science is showing in people who are training hard. And yeah. it's only when you, you take the training stimulus right down that you can get away with low carbs. Mm. Mm. Any kind of intensity, I mean, let's just briefly touch on that. Any kind of intensity means that you, the facts are you need carbs and sugars to exactly. be able to do any sort of level of exactly. intensity. Yeah. And so yeah. that's why... And, and, and we spoke about this earlier on, the, the holy grail for sports nutrition and athletes has always been, how can I reduce my reliance on carbs? Yeah. How can I burn more fat and thus less carb in order to go the same running speed or cycling power output or rowing or whatever it is? Mm. And that's where things like, um, and as I mentioned this earlier, fitness does that. But aside from that, can we manipulate the diet? Can we add supplements like the ketone bodies and the medium chain triglycerides? And one of the methods that was used and it got quite popular was low, train low, compete high, which is to say train with low carb oh, yes. and then race with high carb. Yes, we heard that. Yeah. And so there were a number of ways in which you could train low. You could, you could train first thing in the morning without eating any breakfast mm-hmm. and go for a two, three hour session. By the time you finished it, 100% guaranteed your liver and your muscle glycogen are basically empty. And so for the last hour of that session, you will be low carb. So therefore, you're, burning more, you're driving fat because that's yes. all your body has. Forcing your body to use fat. Yeah. You can adopt a habitual low carb diet. So for two or three weeks, you eat basically no carbs and then you keep your normal training. You can do two training sessions a day one in the morning, one in the afternoon, and not eat in between. So there were different ways of getting a low-carb training session in. The problem is you just can't train hard. Yeah. So you, there's a trade-off. You, you basically trade off high-quality high training against carb um, efficiency or fat-burning efficiency, right? Yeah. And at some point, you actually that trade-off is no longer worth it. And yeah. you're better off defending your training quality and consuming carbs than sacrificing quality on the on the altar of fat burning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> Let's just talk a little bit about, I mean, there's lots of discussion, particularly in ultra-ultra-distance events like um, ultra-trial events, which are 10 hours or more Ironman for some mm. people. Uh, we talked to, there's a lot of talk about GI and GL and yeah. all those sort of things. Mm. GI is gastro, what's it called? Glycemic index. Glycemic index, sorry. Mm. So GI is a high glycemic index. In right. other words, that's the stuff that goes through your system really quickly. Yeah. And yeah, GL so, is low, so that's the stuff that takes a long time to process. Yeah, so, so glycemic index is quantified on a scale from 0 to 100. Um, 100 being a dose of glucose, and how much does it, strictly speaking, what they do is they'll give you a dose of glucose, I think 50 grams, and they measure what happens over the next two hours. And that sets the reference point. Right. Anything else that you take is then compared to that reference point. And, and basically what it quantifies is how much does this sugar load, <laughs> this mm, food, mm. cause my blood glucose to go up and then come down? Does right. it happen quickly? Does it happen slowly? Is it a large increase that goes really high fast and then comes down like a super steep mountain peak? Yeah. Or is it more like a little flat uh, little hill? <laughs> mm, yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. what it looks it, like. Yeah, more, more plateau-y. Yes. yes. Now the theory was that and, and I mean, I guess still remains that when we exercise, we want quick energy, but maybe not so quick that we cause spikes. Mm. Right? I don't know if you've heard that. Yes. So that's why, that's why people started saying maybe we need low GI foods during exercise. The reality is that when we exercise, there's no insulin, there's no, because it's all shut off by the sympathetic stress response. Right. So the glycemic index is not really that important during exercise. 
And in actual fact, what you want is the energy to get from that bottle, gel, whatever it is, into your blood as quick as possible. Mm. In fact, you don't want it to take longer. Yes. Because it's not in the body yet. Yes. So there's no difference materially between sipping on a sports drink or whatever it is every five minutes as opposed to taking a low GI thing that sits in your stomach and only needing to sip every 30 minutes. Right. It's the same thing. Same thing, yes. Because they go, in the end, they're delivering yes. their sugar load, yes. Their, yes. Their, their currency. It's an interesting way of looking at it, yes. Because, yeah, all you're basically doing is, is letting your, st your stomach hold, hold it mm. in storage for a little while. Yes. <laughs> so why, yeah. why bother? So when it's you, inside the, well, yeah. inside the stomach rather than inside a bottle. Exactly. And yeah. there's, no, there's no realistic exercise situation that demands that because mm. whether you're playing a football match, whether you are running in a marathon, there's a, there's a water table every 15 minutes. Yeah. And it's going to have sugar for you. If you're on your bike, there's going to be a water bottle on the bike and, or a, a sports drink bottle. And so, so you're probably better off having high GI drinks or fluids, sources, that you can access frequently mm. than having low GI ones that you access infrequently. Because in the end, you get to the same point. <laughs> By two different parts. I mean, are we talking whole foods here when Nick talks about those? I mean, all those energy products that we talk about are all high yeah. GI, aren't they? Yeah, because yeah. So, they, they're designed to get into a system and work quickly. Right, and they do that. They work. Whereas uh, baby potatoes and maybe a, a whole wheat peanut butter sandwich, for instance, would take a lot longer to digest. Generally, glycemic index does fall across those lines, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know potatoes are quite high GI from what I recall looking at. Because uh, it depends if they have the skin on or off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All those sort of things. And that's where, GI, that's where the glycemic index gets quite complex because yeah. we very rarely consume only one source of anything. Mm. Mm. So, you know, like lentils is a low GI food. But who eats a lentil? <laughs> yes, you can't really take them in your... <laughs> and nothing else. Nothing else, right? Yes. So, so when we actually have a meal, a complex meal on a plate, GI gets quite complicated. Yes. Because that meal doesn't do what the components do. So the sum of the parts is not necessarily equal to the part, if that if you know, makes sense. I thought the sum of the parts was equal to the part because essentially... Whatever you have in a plate, whether it's a whole bunch of potatoes and a piece of meat and but, whatever, all of those things combined combined to a set. Yeah, but quantifying quantifying that's very difficult because yeah. you know there's fat in there and and proteins and carbs and yeah. some high GI foods, some low GI foods. But if you have one with the other, for instance, that will lower the rate of which it goes. Yes, I mean, I know, for instance, course, a friend so. of mine who I ride with, he'll have a he'll have a, a pastry at our coffee point, but then he'll also have a bag of bacon. Because his belief is, and he's slightly, I think he actually is pre-diabetic. Pre yeah. But he has the bacon, so it slows down the glycemic reaction to that pastry. Yeah. With the, with the protein. Yeah, and uh, fair. But but what I'm saying is that okay, a we've now moved away from doing exercise because <laughs> no one's again. no one's got a no one's got a lentil and a bacon bun, butty yes. in, in the pocket. Um, but but during exercise, the point is, how quickly can I get it from outside to inside and then to the muscle? Yeah. And there's very little reason to worry about low GIs and so on during exercise because all you want is rapid disposal and oxidation. Right. And insulin is not a factor because we switch it off. So the insulin levels, even in response to like a huge volume of high GI liquid or food, is very low during exercise. At rest, sitting here as we are now, I could take that GI dose and my insulin levels would be sky high because my glucose would just react to it like an explosion of sugar in my blood 
but in exercise that doesn't happen yeah. because the situations change. Changed, yeah. The only the one the one place that the GI does become important is that pre race breakfast or meal. Yes, that was my next. Yeah, yeah that's where so, that my next question actually. Yes, so your so th- so this is quite important because what we eat before is important for two reasons. One is if you eat it far enough in advance and it's large enough, it fills up the tank. That's carbo loading, yeah. which we can maybe get onto. But in the shorter term, it gets the tank, the, the liver glycogen especially, and it puts glucose into the system. So then when you start exercise, you are f- fill up. It's like taking a car trip and filling up with gas before yeah. you leave the city. Yeah. The, the problem is that when we are at rest, which is the case for breakfast or when we have our coffee stops and our rides, and we now, now we're not shutting off insulin. So we're in a state at, the, at, that, at that moment we are in the metabolic state where that ingestion of three sugars, my banana bread, croissant, whatever it is, is going to cause my blood glucose to go up. In response, insulin levels will go up. Yes? Right. And we know what insulin does, right? Mm-hmm. In, insulin is going to tell the body to put that glucose in storage. That's its job. Store, store, store. It's a storage hormone. It wants to pack stuff away. <laughs> and so insulin is then going to cause that blood glucose to be put into the muscle, to be put into the liver. And the problem then is that if you start exercise at exactly the wrong time, your blood glucose has actually gone down because insulin's trying to store it. store it. And then you overlay exercise on top of that, which burns blood glucose, and all of a sudden you get hyperglycemic. Right. And that's called a rebound or a reactive hyperglycemia. And okay. there are people for whom that is a major problem. And sometimes it happens to me. Do you remember the one time I missed the ride with you guys because we, I went to the wrong meeting point? And so I started 10 minutes after you and I had to chase you all the way to Cork Bay. I had a banana bread and two coffees there. And within 20 minutes of leaving coffee stop, I was absolutely shot hyperglycemic. Yes. Had to stop. Remember we had to stop at a garage yes, so I, I could have two. That actually happens to me a fair and amount. And I, I had to drink two yes. Cokes just to get home. Yes. yes. And that's because in that rest stop, I took too long and I had too much sugar. And then I started exercise too late after stopping, okay. after, after eating. Right. And I'd started to dispose of glucose and then exercise on top of it. Bad idea. So it wasn't accessible. Yeah, exactly. No. So at that moment, my body was sending it in the wrong direction. Right. And then I started exercising over and above that and my blood glucose would have fallen. So what, what do you do then if you want to feel before a ride? How do you well, know how you, far in advance you need to do it to you, prevent that? So you have a window which has to either – you have a window of opportunity – Actually, it's not a window. There's a window of um, failure. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. And if you've got to avoid eating in that window. You've got to, therefore, you have to wait as long as possible before you start. Before you eat. Yes. Um, so, wow. in other words, you eat within 15 minutes of starting or you drink a sports drink or something like fruit juice or whatever it is. Or you have to consume that meal two or three hours before. So that the whole process so is that the process happened. is complete by the complete. time you start right. exercise. So two hours and before is actually quite right, but it, not an hour before. But it depends, as so often is the case, <laughs> on what you eat and how much. And the general rule of thumb is that for every gram of sugar per kilogram, you need an hour. So if you have a fifty, if you if you consume fifty grams of carbs, you need about one hour before you start. If you consume a hundred grams of carbs, you need about two grams. Two hours. Yeah, yeah. that's sorry. Yeah. Two two hours, of yeah. course. Yes. Yeah. So so it's a, sorry. It's per kilogram. So let me let me try this again. If you're a seventy kilogram athlete, and you consume fifty to seventy grams one hour, 
If you're a 70 kilogram athlete who consumes 140 grams, two hours, mm. 200 grams, three hours. Yeah. So that's, that's the rule of thumb. So the oh. bigger your meal, the longer it takes, which is obvious. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, you're, yeah, you do well to avoid. And that's why in our situation, I've now learned <laughs> that if we stop for coffee or whatever it is to, to finish the coffee and then go. Yes. You can't, you can't finish the coffee, enjoy yeah, the view, yeah, chat yeah. to other cyclists, talk yeah. about next week's ride, <laughs> think about things, have Which another one. A lot. <laughs> and then And then you finish the coffee at half past nine and you're yeah. on the bike at quarter past ten. That's, 40, that's, that's too long. So you have, yes. to, you have to say to the waitress, can we have the bill, please? Mm. Last sip, pay, right. That's interesting. Otherwise, you go into that risk You state, could. You? you could. You could. So yes. some people are you much more it. susceptible to yes. that than others. And there yeah. are actually interesting studies where they've, they've done this in the lab and they've simulated that reactive hyperglycemia, that after yes. drop. Yeah, yeah. And then they've made people do performances. And even though they feel really lousy, it doesn't actually affect their performance, which is quite mm-hmm. interesting. Because mm-hmm. they've still got the sugar there. It's just that the, the blood, sh- the glycogen's fine and everything's mm-hmm. okay. It's just that their brains aren't seeing the blood glucose in that moment. So... Fascinating. I yeah. never knew that at all. And it does explain a lot of the experiences I have yeah. on the bike. And it's those long stops. It's, you feel it, worse after the lo- the longer the stop, the worse you feel. Well, there's you a few reasons There's a few reasons for that. I mean, like yeah. we also get your muscles get cold yeah. and suddenly you've got yeah, to start again. It's a combination again, so, of things. Yeah. yeah. But if you, get, if you are aware that you get lightheaded dizziness within 20 minutes of a stop or eating something, then you're a candidate for this reactive hyperglycemia. And then you've either got to make sure you eat before, or sometimes what I do, for instance, now I've learned, if we're going to do a ride in the mornings and it's going to be a couple hours before I know we'll stop, I'll actually get on the bike and while I'm pedaling really slowly to start, that's when I'll be drinking and eating something. Because now I've started exercise and the key is, once I start exercise, my my sympathetic nervous system is switching the insulin off. So that player is gone. Mm. And now it's really just an exercise situation. It makes an enormous sense because of the last few weeks when we've done long rides on the weekend, I've had a, I've taken a, one of those um, little energy bars with me called a far bar here in South mm. Africa. But it's a little energy bar. I don't know quite how much is in it, but I have that as I walk out the door and I'm chewing it on the way down the road. And I've had my best rides when I've done that. Mm. And I haven't eaten that much on the ride um, other than that. But I've had my best rides, and I think yeah. you're right. It's 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 switching that reaction off. It's a classic example. We just got to be aware yeah. of it, and if you know it's you, yeah. then you either got to change your timing mm. or what you eat, or both, yeah. in order to not fall into that window. You know that's that's the problem. Is you yeah. you just you invite insulin to a situation it's not welcome. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, we're running out of time a little bit here, but I think there's one last subject I wanted to talk about because it is so current and people talk about it a lot on social media and lots of uh, noise around the space. And that's the, that's the keto diets and the banting diets and those sort of things. From my understanding is that it is definitely possible for athletes to be on keto diets. We know a couple of people in South Africa, they ride pretty well. But are they effective really? Um, for the average person to be on a, a low carb diet to the in an extreme way and still be as good as they could be as an athlete yeah it's a it's a loaded question obviously because oh, um there's a broader context of habitual diets for health and life and we're talking about the one to three hours a day of exercise mm. Um, there's no evidence I'm aware of that elite athletes can sustain the quality and quantity of training necessary to be elite on those diets. Right. That's the sh- first point, right? 
So when we're talking about Olympic level athletes, and there was a study, Louise Burke is another one of the world's most famous sports nutrition experts and did a study looking at race walkers. Now race walking is is i mean it's high intensity for what they're doing but they're they're the they're the lowest intensity olympic athletes you know the 50k race walk that they used mm. to do mm. i mean that's that's nothing like your 1500 meter 10k guy right yeah and they did studies where they found that people on these low carb diets were inefficient compared to when they're on high carb diets so their their metabolic and overall performance efficiency was in, was impaired and the conclusion was that they probably didn't want their athletes on it because they couldn't train at the quality and achieve the same level of performance as when they had carbohydrates in the diet. Now, the, the criticism from the low-carb side is that you have to take, it takes time to adapt. Yeah. So, you know, in that study, and I don't remember, I, I meant to look into this before I came and chatted today, but I, I forgot. <laughs> the, the criticism is that you don't give them enough time. But then, you see, I'm, I'm trying to be practical and I'm saying you're dealing with elite athletes. How much time do you need them to sacrifice? How much, how much time out of that guy's year must he take to see whether it might be beneficial for him to adapt to a very low-carb diet before he, before he gets the benefit? Do you want two months of his training life? Do you want four months? And what if it doesn't work and he sacrifices four months of his training life for something that has no benefit? So that, that's why it hasn't taken hold at that level. And there have been lots of stories about athletes who are vegan and low-carb and what, whatever else, but the reality is that when they need the carbs, they fuel the carbs. Yeah. You know, when we spoke to Professor Graham Close, he said, principle number one is energy for the work required. And so even in an athlete who is habitually low carb, going out and doing a six-day stage race or the Tour de France, we, we set aside all that stuff now. And now we're on 15 grams a day of carbs per kilogram body weight. Yeah. So, so, so for that level, now... Maybe thinking, all right, well, I'm not that level. Can I get away with it for my four-hour marathon or even a three-hour marathon runner? Mm. Probably can, yeah. You probably can. I haven't, a low-carb diet. Yeah. Mm. I haven't seen um, data to show what the maximum rate of fat oxidation can be because that's the key, right? Yeah. So let, let's say you're running a marathon with the, with the canyons in London and you're running 204. Your energy consumption is probably a thousand two hundred calories an hour i would have thought huge i mean it's, it's monstrous yeah energy consumption now can you provide that with fat no not i've never seen anyone show that you can provide that much energy calories per hour of fat you know thousand two hundred hour from fat what's so i don't know what's the what's the highest fat oxidation rate ever recorded in, in man i'm not sure but i don't think it's that yeah difficult to measure too yeah, I mean, I'm sure it does exist. And perhaps yeah. for our wrap-up of this endurance series, I should go and actually look it up before I come up with these ideas on the, on the show like this. But <laughs> um, whereas carbs, we know you can. Mm. So, so the a athletes are making a pragmatic decision. But if you're someone who's doing a four-hour marathon, you know, the interesting thing is your, your energy cost is about the same, but over four hours, not two. So now you need 600 grams an hour. Yeah. That's possible with fat. Even a three-hour marathon, you need 800 grams an hour. That's probably possible with fats. Mm. So there will be a lot of quite good athletes who are very low-carb, ketotic, because in response to their habitual diet and their training, they have just adapted to use fats more effectively than other people yeah. can. Yeah. But they're not winning races yeah. is the point. Yeah. 
So. Well, that is interesting. And I, I guess to some extent, you know, there are lots of stories about people who are on keto diets. I mean, I know there's a local rider here in South Africa, Cape Town, who's, you know, does monstrous 200-kilometer rides and, you know, always talks about the fact that he's keto and, and not taking any fats and hasn't done for a decade. Mm obviously in very good shape as well but he's also trains hard you know the, the, the idea that he's only doing this because he's on a particular diet it, it nullifies the fact that he's actually adapted and he has trained pretty hard to do those rides yeah and so he's earned the right to burn the fat yeah. um, again I come back that study it's a 2004 study by Achten um, 14 days of deliberate overtraining the people who are on lower carb diets don't do as well. Yeah. They, they get more tired, their mood state is negatively affected, their fatigue scores are up, muscle damage is higher, and their performances get worse. So, so yeah, you can go and do it. And I mean, I'm not, again, remember what we said in the beginning, there's no right or wrong. It's just appropriate yeah. and inappropriate. Yeah. Um, and so there will be people listening to this who know that they've successfully done this low carb stuff. And I think that's wonderful for them. It might be that they've got yeah. some genetic difference but what I'm saying is don't tell everyone else that the same diet will work for them. Mm. And that works both ways, of course. Mm. Um, again, we've spoken a lot about the 120 grams of carbs per hour. Some of these people will have a heart attack at the thought of that much carb. They don't have that much in a month, never mind in an, in an yeah. hour. Yeah. Um, but, but this is what the research suggests works the best, is that there's a dose response Higher carb diets give better performances acutely and chronically because they allow a better recovery and less overtraining indication and so on. So if I was to give advice to everyone collectively, that's what it would be. But on an individual basis, you might well be the exception. So, yeah. so at the risk of undermining everything we've just said, like there are going to be outliers. But I think what we've said here is is the sound scientifically based evidence-based set of principles you can start with the principles and then operate on your own figure out your own system from there because the yeah. principles are a fairly solid base right and i mean i i hope we've we didn't yeah. really make a list of them but the, the number one principle is that the rate sets the demand yeah and you can meet that demand by burning fat or carbs more easily carbs but possibly fat depending what it is and then beyond that everything is preference you know so yeah. how much do you prefer how much can you tolerate is you know we've said here 100 grams an hour maybe you only deal with 50 in which case the extra 50 is only going to make you sick so don't try it <laughs> well try it once and then you know yeah and and so yeah the, the the point is understand that energy demand is the thing you're meeting mm. and you're paying for that you're paying for that demand with carbs and fats basically yeah. we haven't even touched on protein but we needn't bother yeah. Yeah. carbs and fat and the less you can get away with on carbs, the better. But I think you're better off saying, I'm going to do everything I can to maximize carbs and then work backwards from there. Yeah. That would be my advice. Yeah, good way to wrap it up. If you do have any questions around our Endurance Month here in February, please don't forget you can contact us on our Twitter feed, Sports SciPod, it's sports and then S-C-I-P-O-D. And of course, Ross is on Twitter as well if you want to message him directly. But ask us any questions because at the end of February, our podcast will include questions from you and from particularly from our patrons um, who are supporting us on, pay, on our patrons that are supporting us on Patreon, um, where we will take questions 
questions and we'll hopefully get to answer your questions around endurance sport and all of the challenges that uh, we face with that so don't forget sports side pod on twitter uh, ross of course on twitter and uh, our patrons as well don't forget you can visit our patreon page at patreon.com just look for science of sport and all the details are on there and you can contribute uh, a small amount to our podcasts but uh, from us for now it's goodbye Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.